Why don't I pray and then we'll, we'll jump into this. So, Father, we thank you so much for this passage. Lord, thanks that it's included in here because there's a lot that we can gain from it. And so, Father, please, would you help us as we do that today? Uh, give us real insight into this. Uh, and, Father, would you meet us as we look through it with your grace? Because uh, we need that today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, because we're talking about sin, I thought I'd talk about Thanksgiving. And this past Thanksgiving was... <laughs> you caught up. Thank you. Um, this past Thanksgiving was, I mean, our first Thanksgiving back in America in, uh, I think, seven years. Maybe we had one in the midst of our time living overseas. But um, we had to endure um, so many Thanksgivings that were, quite frankly, just sort of lame because it's not a day off there. So you, you go to work during the day and then you try your best to have some sort of turkey for dinner. But the problem is they don't sell turkeys until into December because they hold them all for Christmas because that's when they eat their turkey there. So you do your best to try and have something that resembles uh, American style stuffing and um, marshmallows on sweet potatoes and things like that. But it just... It's a suffering, let's just be honest. And this last uh, year, we had our first one back in the land of the free, and I could not wait to eat the turkey and the stuffing and the mashed potatoes and the green bean casserole and the pie. Oh, yes, the pie. And uh, a friend, I won't embarrass her, but here in this room invited Emmy and I to Thanksgiving, and we weren't eating until I think it was four or five in the afternoon and the evening. Uh, and that's normal, that's, you know, normal time to eat Thanksgiving. And so the only rational way to approach Thanksgiving Day is to hold off on eating anything until dinner. That's the only, you know, that's the only rational way. If you eat something before, you probably should be uh, committed to an insane asylum because you've wasted space for all these amazing things you're going to have later. And, uh, and so, you know, why would you waste space on that? And so uh, why would you, you know, eat a piece of toast when you can have a turkey dinner. Why would you do that? Well, like I said, the passage we're looking at today is mostly about sin. Um, why are these two things connected? Um, we'll have to wait and find out. Uh, you know, if you're visiting us today for the first time, uh, I do want to say, yeah, we are actually, we are the kind of church that talks about sin. Uh, not pounding our fists on the, on the pulpit sort of way. But we believe sin is something that every single human being struggles with. Every single human being is affected by it. And so we believe sin is actually the thing that separates us from God. And if you have any sort of broken relationship with another person, it's, that's the thing that has, has separated you from them. And so, uh, so that, that's what we believe about sin. But we also believe that sin can be dealt with by grace and through faith. And so the way we approach the topic of sin here is that it's extremely serious that all of us, all of us are burdened by sin. All of us are broken by sin. All of us need our sin to be dealt with or we will be eternally separated from God. And we will continue to have broken relationships with other people. And yet in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we actually find a way to have our sins forgiven and our lives transformed. And so if we're talking about sin, then... Why not start talking about Thanksgiving? Why would, I, why would I do that? Well, it's in that dynamic of eating or not eating before Thanksgiving dinner that we actually find the way to overcome the sins that so easily entangle us. Uh, and that's actually, by the way, it's how the book of Hebrews talks about our sins. It says that there are some sins that, uh, it says, entangle us. 
the church father, Augustine, he picks up on that language. Uh, he talks about sin like this. He says that our sins uh, become almost limbs to our souls. That if to, to cut them off, to lose them would be like losing an arm or losing a leg. It'd be painful. And I don't think I need to spend much time drawing this out for us because I'm sure without much work, every single one of us can think about the one or two sins in our own lives uh, that are what the old translations of the Bible call besetting sins. The old King James version of that verse I mentioned in Hebrews about sin that entangles us, it, it puts it this way. It, says, it calls it the sin, I love this, the sin which doth so easily beset us. In other words, sins that over time have become so natural to us, so tied to us, so much a limb of our soul that we forget that they're there. It's just a natural part of our lives. Uh, have you got one or two of those in mind? The ones that you're so easily beset with? Well, good. So I've got a microphone here, so we'll all come up one by one. Uh, no, we're not going to do that. The passage we're looking at today, it actually deals directly with overcoming this idea of a, of a besetting sin, of one that is like a limb to your soul. And what we see is that if there is a besetting sin that goes undealt with, that that thing will just sap the courage and strength right out of you. We don't have time to get into this, but did you notice in Joshua's prayer of lament, all the courage and strength has been sapped out of him? And it says for the first time that Israel's hearts are melting in fear. Uh, all summer long, we've been uh, looking through the book of Joshua, trying to learn just how a person can be filled with strength and courage to face any sort of challenge. And what we've learned so far is that the strength and courage that we find in the Bible uh, is not the stuff of superheroes, but it's the stuff of everyday faithfulness. And what we see today is that if we allow sin to continue to beset us, continue to entangle us, it actually destroys our faithfulness. And as a result, it saps all the strength and courage right out of us. And so there's a lot going on in this passage, like I said. We're only going to focus on three things, so here they are. Uh, first, all sin follows the same pattern. Second, all sin results in the same outcome. And thirdly, all sin needs the same antidote. So it all follows the same pattern, all results in the same outcome, all needs the same antidote. So let's take a look at the first of these three things, that all sin follows the same pattern. So let me show you the pattern, and then we'll back up and see just how we got there. So when this man, Achan, is finally caught in a sin, look at what he says. This is what Achan says in verse 20. Achan replied, it's true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia... 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Uh, there's four verbs in his confession. Here they are. I saw. I coveted. I took. I hid. I saw. I coveted. I took. I hid. That's the pattern of all sin. I see it. I covet it. I take it. And I hide it. All sin. I mean, there's so many different ways to sin, but it all follows that same pattern. We're going to break that down in a minute, but let's just pick up to see, uh, pick the story up to see just how we got here. So in the story, we're looking mostly today about this man, Achan, who disobeyed the Lord, and he actually took from the plunder of Jericho some of the silver and the gold and expensive clothing, which on the surface doesn't sound like a bad thing. Uh, I have a friend 
uh, here in L.A. And his dad was actually one of the first soldiers into Hitler's personal office when we defeated the Germans in World War II. And his dad has passed on to him now a sword from Hitler's office. And plunder. And that's, like a, that's a normal thing. Like You would think, okay, if you're conquering somewhere, that, that's normal. But Israel wasn't supposed to be like any other conquering nation. They weren't like pirates going in and taking everything for their own personal reward. The reward that we've seen from the moment God promised the land to Abraham, 400 and some odd years before this moment, their reward for moving into the land wasn't gold or silver or clothing. Their reward for moving into the land was to dwell in the presence of the Lord. That's the reward. He is their treasure. And so back in Joshua chapter 6, the one we looked at last week, they, they took Jericho. But before they did that, Joshua got all the fighting men, the soldiers together, and he said this to them. Uh, chapter 6, verse 18, he says, But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold... And the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. And then you get to chapter, so then they, they defeat Jericho, and then you get to chapter 7, verse 1, and look again at what it says. It says, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, tells you his family line, he took some of them so that the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And so what happened? Well, exactly what Joshua said would happen. They went out to take the city, the, the next city, Ai, which is a small city, it's a, it's a tiny one. They, they sent spies out and the spies were like, hey, we only need like two or 3,000 uh, soldiers to go and take that one. It's a small one. And so with the Lord as their commander, it should have been a piece of cake, but then look what happens in verse four. It says that a few thousand of them went up and they were routed and 36 of the soldiers died. And then at the very end of verse 5, it says, At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. And so now Israel, the one who we saw last week, the commander of the army of the Lord is their commander. Now they're defeated. The nation who walked through the Jordan on dry ground, the, the one who walked around Jericho for seven days and the walls fell down and they just defeated it like that. The, the nation who's, who everyone else's hearts were melting in fear, they got defeated by this ragtag small city. All this, verse 1 says, is because of the sin of one man. And there's a principle that emerges here that we're going to spend the rest of the time dealing with this. And that's the principle I mentioned in the beginning, that nothing will sap your courage and strength. Nothing will just drag it right out of you. Like sin does. And so let's look at it and see if we can find a way to overcome it. And remember the pattern of sin, that when Achan's sin finally catches up with him, when he's finally forced to confess, remember he said, I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. I see, I covet, I take, I hide. Now, this is one story. So how do I know that that's the pattern of all sin? Well, we don't have the time to turn there, but if you went back to Genesis chapter 3, and you read about the first sin... You might want to read about this later. What does it say they do? It says they saw the fruit was good. They desired it, coveted it. They took some of it and ate it. 
And then what did they do? They hid. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. You know, the second sin recorded in the Bible, same thing. Cain saw Abel's sacrifice and he saw that it made him pleasing to the Lord. He saw. He coveted the relationship that Abel had. And so what did he do? He tried to take it by killing him. And then what does he do? He hides. Same thing. I see, I covet, I take, I hide. And that's the pattern of all sin. And all of us are susceptible to this. And so let's look at it in just a little bit more detail. Uh, I see. Now, seeing it, you haven't sinned yet. Okay? Uh, of course, Achan and all the fighting men of Israel, they're going to see all kinds of plunder as they conquer. They're going to go into homes. They're going to go into the treasuries. And seeing it is not the sin. It only becomes sin when you move past it to coveting it. Uh, Martin Luther, the great 16th century reformer of the Christian church, he had a funny way of explaining this. He said, you can't stop the birds from flying around your head, but you don't have to make a nest for them to land in. Right? The birds are going to fly there. I can't do anything about that. But I don't have to make a nest for them. In other words, there will always be temptation flying around you. You'll see all sorts of desirable things, but you don't have to make a home for them in your life. The place where it becomes sin is when you covet, and that's the second verb, I covet. Uh, it's that subtle turn from, wow, she's pretty, to I want her. Or from, isn't that a nice Instagram post and hitting like to, I've got to make my life look like that. And this is what Aiken actually, that's what he says he did. He saw. He saw the silver. He saw the gold. He saw the garment. But did you notice he didn't just leave it there? He, he says he coveted it. And do you know the evidence of him coveting it? It's right in there. He counted it. He said there's 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Uh, unless he's rain man, you don't look at a pile of 200 things and are like 200. And you don't look at a bar of, of gold and be like, oh, that, that's 50. Right? He counted it. He weighed it. And that's what it is to covet something, to weigh it, to count it, to, to weigh it in your mind, to think about it, to dwell on it, to obsess over it, to make it your focus, to daydream it. But that's to covet. And eventually, if you do that long enough, what happens? You take it. Now, you might be wondering, why is it enough to say that someone has sinned when they're only just coveting? They haven't taken it yet. They haven't done anything other than turning something over in their mind and their heart. Why is that sin? Isn't sin found just in our actions? Well, not so fast, because both the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount forbid us from coveting. And underneath it, here's, here's what it is to covet. It's to say to God... That you're not enough, God. And it's to say to him, the things that you've provided for me already, the things that you've given to me, aren't enough. You know, if you're married and you covet another man or another woman, what you're really saying is the gift of the spouse that the Lord has given you isn't enough. You know, if you feel that way about anything that God has already provided for you, that's coveting. And of course, you can do this with a possession. You could do this with money. You could do this with a career. You could do this with a person. You could do this even with the idea of a person. Covet the idea of being in a relationship with a person. You can covet all sorts of things. 
And coveting is enough to call it sin because coveting is a form of rejecting the blessings that God has already given you. Saying God himself isn't enough and that the things he's already given you isn't enough. And again, if you covet enough, if you do that enough, eventually, inevitably, you're going to take it. Uh, That's the third verb, I take, and that's exactly what Achan does. And we'll see in just a minute that the taking actually leads to destruction. It leads to the defeat of the army, the destruction of Achan and his whole family. And so what does that show us? Well, it shows us that inside every human heart is the potential to covet something, to desire something, to crave something so much that despite knowing the consequences, knowing the destructive power that it will have in your life, you still take it, even though you know what it's going to do to you. And that's exactly what happens to Achan. He knew he knew the prohibition from Joshua. He knew the prohibition that God gave to Israel before they even entered into the land. He knew the consequences would be destructive. He knew he would lose his possessions, that he would lose his families, that his family, that, that other people would lose their lives, that he would lose his life if it was found out. And yet his desire, his craving, his coveting, it overtook him. And he took the gold and he took the silver and he took the garment anyway. Now, can you identify with that? You know, and most of the time we like to read the stories of these heroes of the Bible, Joshua. I'm Joshua in the story. Not so fast. This is the one you're supposed to be Achan. And ultimately then taking leads to hiding. And Achan says, I hid them in the ground under my tent. And of course, that's the most natural reaction, right? To hide from others the wrong things that we've done, uh, which we think is dealing with it. But in the end, obviously it's not. Because even if no one ever founds out, The thing we forget, and that comes so apparent in the story, is that God knows. I don't care how thick the walls of his tent are, (laughs) the Lord can see through it. He knows all the things we've ever done, all the things we've ever thought, all the words that we ever speak before they're even on our tongue. And so hiding our sin doesn't work. So let me put this back together. Uh, The pattern for sin is exactly the same. I see, I covet, I take, I hide. Uh, Let me just illustrate this for you. A couple of years ago, we had some friends over for dinner and they had, I think he was four or five years old at the time. And the apartment that we lived in then, it had two stories to it. Our kitchen was upstairs, the living room was downstairs, and there's like a void in between. So you could stand in the kitchen and look over a ledge down into the living room. Does that make sense? Like a balcony, basically. And, uh, and so we, uh, Emmy and uh, this boy, they were playing with a puzzle or something like that before dinner as, as we were getting ready. And uh, when it came time to eat, they put the puzzle back in its box and then they, to get the things off the floor, they put the box on the, the ledge, on the railing. And then we sit down to dinner. And I'm sitting across from this four or five-year-old boy. And we're having a great conversation about dinosaurs or magic or something. I don't know what it was. And I'm telling you, he was mid-sentence. I wasn't mid-sentence. He was mid-sentence. All of a sudden, I see him do this. And then he looks over at the box on the ledge. And he looks at it. And then he gets up out of his chair without saying a word, walks over to the ledge, shoves it off, comes back, sits down and picks up his fork and starts eating again. All of it happened in a matter of like 20 seconds. He saw, he coveted, he took, and then he hid because he comes back and just starts eating his food and his parents are like, why did you do that? And he's like, it's not a big deal, it fell on the couch. You know, he's hiding in plain sight. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. 
And there's only one way to deal with our sin, and we'll come to that in a moment. But that way is to bring it out into the open. That way is to confess it. But before we look at that, we need to see our second point. And just like last week, the first point is much longer than the other two. So first, sin follows, all sin follows the same pattern. Now second, all sin results in the same outcome. Uh, In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, when the child Edmund is taken in by the witch, and she actually draws him in uh, with a little tin of, of Turkish delight, which you either love it or you hate it. Uh, Edmund loved it, okay? Um, Rose Turkish Delight, that shall be burned, but any other flavor is good. Um, and it actually says that he, he, as he ate this Turkish Delight that the witch was giving him, he shoveled down as much as he could, and that the more he ate, the more he wanted. And even as he was eating it, he couldn't pay attention to what was really happening around him, Because his desire for the Turkish delight had actually taken over so much that it says the more he ate it, the more he wanted it. And if he were allowed to, it says he would go on eating it until he killed himself. Now that's a picture of the way the human heart latches onto things, of the way we covet, of the way that we desire certain things. And so the heart makes you want something so badly that it's actually, it's like suicidal to get them. To go on eating it until it kills you. And to get it means that when you get it, you end up losing everything. And that's exactly what happens to Achan in the story. He gets it, and he loses everything. Because not only does the army get defeated because of Achan's sin, but he loses everything. He even loses his own life. Now, it's possible that, as this passage was read out earlier, you got to this point in the story where all of Achan's animals and all his family and Achan himself, they're stoned to death. And maybe you thought... Oh, here we go. One of those, one of those Bible passages. You know, how are you going to explain this one away? Uh, one where everyone dies. See, I told you, God is vengeful and vindictive, and the punishment always outweighs the crime. But listen, Achan knew exactly what he had done. You don't see him surprised by the punishment. You don't see him surprised that this is a capital offense. Is what does he say when Joshua says to him in verse 19, he says, my, Joshua says, my son, give glory to, to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you've done and do not hide from me. What does Achan say in verse 20? He says, you got me. It's true. I have sinned against the Lord. And this is what I've done. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. Achan knew that this was a capital offense and he doesn't even try to fight it. So let's not get too caught up in that, let's try and center on the main point of the passage it's trying to make here, which is this that sin always results in the same outcome. And that outcome is destruction. And it's so apparent, so clear here in the passage that Achan's sin doesn't just bring destruction on him, but it brings destruction on his family and the nation. And did you notice it even affects the place where it all happens? At the end, it says this place is going to be this like cursed place. And here's the point. Your sin, I know this is uncomfortable, but your sin, the things that you do that are disobedient to God, they not only affect you, but they affect the people around you and the society that you live in. When we become so individualistic as a society, we say things like, oh, well, that might be wrong for you, but not for me. 
You know, what's wrong for one individual might not be wrong for another. And yet at the same time, uh, the other side of our mouths, we say, well, I want to live in a society of fairness and justice with rules and laws to protect people. And what this passage shows us is that you can't live in a, a society where everyone is just an individual. And their individual choices are governed by their own individual rule and law. No, your choices, your actions, right or wrong, affect me, and they affect others around you. And so what we're always saying in our culture is, well, I don't want to be held by that standard. I want everyone else to be held by that standard. And that's the point here. Sin is so pervasive, so permeating, it ruins, it destroys everything it touches, and it is never, never, never limited to just the person, the individual person who commits the sin. It always has an impact on others. And this is why, as a church, I said, we are the kind of church that talks about this because it matters. Sin is destructive. It's catastrophic. It's ruinous not only to you as an individual, but to everyone around you. And so whatever it is that you thought of earlier when you thought about your own personal besetting sin, that particular sin, no matter how personal, no matter how secret, no matter how self-contained or individual you think it is, it has a destructive effect on the people around you. And of course, I said before, the best thing to do is to complain, to fess up, to bring it out in the open, because all sin, and this is point three, all sin needs the same antidote. The antidote to sin is confession and repentance. It's to bring it out in the open, it's to have it dealt with. It's the only way to to bear it to someone, to open up and let someone see you for who you really are. But let's be honest, the only way you're ever going to do that is if you know there's something better on the other side of all the pain that comes with confession, that comes with being honest. Like, I'm not going to tell you my sins, my deepest, darkest cravings, the ways I've taken, coveted and taken. And that's the whole reason I've hidden them in the first place. So I'm not going to tell you that, because of course, if you do that, then you face the wrath the just punishment for the wrong that you've done. And that's actually what it says back in verse 1. Look at it again. It says, Israel was unfaithful because of Achan. And at the end of verse 1, do you see what it says? It says, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And that word anger, that's the word wrath. But then at the very end, in verse 26, it says this, then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. And once again, that's the word wrath. And isn't that what we want? For God's wrath to be turned away. Not to pour out his wrath on us for our sins. And yet in the middle of those two verses, we see Achan and his entire family punished. And so what that means is they took the wrath. It was poured out on them. But of course they didn't have to. God always provided a way for the forgiveness of sins. If Achan had confessed, if he had repented, there were sacrifices they could could have done. And those sacrifices would have taken the wrath instead of Achan and his family. But that's not what he does. You know, even though we have a confession from him, uh, he hasn't actually taken the antidote. The antidote is always confession and repentance. But that's not actually what he does. He doesn't come right out with it. He doesn't confess until he's finally found out. You know how the story goes. They cast lots, which is somewhat like flipping a coin to find out. You know, they narrow it down to the one person, the one man who sinned. And uh, it says they started early in the morning. They did this all day long. Flip a coin, flip a coin, flip a coin. It narrows down, narrows down, narrows down. 
And from the very first casting of lots, the very first flip of the coin, Achan knew it was him. He could have in that moment confessed. And God, in doing this and having Joshua go through this exercise, what is he doing? He's being patient. He's giving him time to confess. He's giving him time to repent. And had he confessed, had he repented, there were ways to have the wrath of God taken away. But he does Achan doesn't turn there. He doesn't confess. He doesn't repent. And because he did that, the only way for God's wrath to be turned away on the nation is for Achan to bear it. For his family to to bear the wrath themselves. And of course, this leads us straight to the heart of the Christian gospel. That the only real reason anyone truly becomes a Christian is to have the wrath turned away. It's not only by the the blood of bulls and goats, it's by the precious blood of Jesus Christ that on the cross when Jesus shed his blood, what it says is he was taking the wrath. The punishment that each one of us deserve for every single time we've walked down the road of seeing and then coveting and then taking and then hiding. Jesus Christ, the one who never took one step beyond seeing, who never coveted one thing in his entire life, he took the wrath. He took the anger of God as if he had done all of it. And because of that, because Jesus Christ took the wrath, it means that for those who put their trust in him, that means, that means the wrath is turned away. It's verse 26. And that's the Christian gospel. And so do you want the wrath turned away? This is the antidote. Confess your sins. Bring them out into the open, into the light, as the New Testament says. And when you do that, and in fact, you can do that, because when you do that, you actually meet the forgiveness and the love and the compassion of God expressed through Jesus Christ. And so that's the reason, that's the real reason anyone ever becomes a Christian in the first place. That's how the wrath is turned away. And Achan and his family, they didn't have to take the wrath, but they did. And you don't have to. Because Jesus Christ took the wrath. Now, lastly, at the start, I said I would tell you what in the world Thanksgiving dinner has to do with any of this. And so here it is. Uh, There's a way to keep yourself from falling into sin in the first place. And I'm sure most of you, as you thought about those besetting sins, you probably at the same time just thought, I just wish I could be rid of it. And that's where Thanksgiving dinner comes in. Uh, you know that desire for the better meal, the best meal of the year, and it was. Uh, the best meal of the year, the one that keeps you from eating a piece of toast for breakfast and a lame sandwich for lunch, that's the very same desire that can keep you from sinning in the first place. The way to overcome temptation is to meet that desire with a better one. Uh, Thomas Chalmers, he was a Scottish pastor and theologian. Uh, and he did a lot of work in, in Edinburgh where he lived. And a lot of his work was to addicts, uh, a lot of people who were drawn deeply into the kinds of sin and life patterns that are just such a grip on you, it's almost impossible to climb out of it. And at one point while reflecting on his ministry, he wrote a sermon that eventually made it into a book. And he called it, the sermon is called uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in that sermon, he said this. The only way you can ever release the soul from the power of a beautiful object 
is to give it a more beautiful object. The only way you can release the soul from the power of a beautiful object is to give it a more beautiful object. That is the only way. But when you're starving at 3 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day, the only way to leave the potato chips in the pantry, the only way to stay away from the processed cold cuts in the fridge is to think about a better meal, to think about the best meal. And so this is how we keep ourselves from sin in the first place. That beautiful thing that is tempting you, that as you turn it over in your mind, it's calling you. The only way to really overcome it is to look at something else, to look at something better. Right? That's the first part of the pattern of sin, is to see something, to see something that is desirable, but you know in the end it will take your life. And so look at something else. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, and pretty much I'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles the sins which doth beset us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And here it is. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What is he saying? He's saying, Look at something better. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And if Achan had done that, if he had fixed his eyes on the real treasure and dwelling in the land with God, he would have been able to resist the temptation to take a lesser one. And the same is true for us. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Turn your gaze to him. And you can overcome any temptation. And when you're living like that, sin will no longer sap the strength and courage right out of you. Obviously, we need the Lord's help in this, so let's pray and ask him.